Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate is gun control versus gun rights. 20 years after Columbine, has anything changed? We as adults do owe an apology to the young people. The disconnect over guns. Self-defense is a human right. There's a huge difference between people having a gun and people using military-style weapons. Where do we go from here? We walk you through the flames. He got a pardon for his crimes. Now he's running the process. Light bulb went off in the governor's head saying, hey, listen, man, I think this is an opportunity of a lifetime. The man with a second chance and how he plans to pay it forward. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is gun rights versus gun control. This week marks 20 years since the Columbine massacre that claimed the lives of a dozen students and a teacher. And 12 years since 32 people died at the hands of a gunman at Virginia Tech. In 2017, 40,000 died from guns in America, the highest in 50 years, making the U.S. one of six countries that account for more than half of the world's gun deaths. So decades after Columbine, what is America doing to stop mass gun killing? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Shira Goodman. She's executive director of Ceasefire Pennsylvania. We also have Sarita Lewis, executive director of March for Our Lives Philadelphia. We also have Jonathan Goldstein of Goldstein Law Partners. One of his clients is the National Rifle Association, but he's here in his individual capacity. And finally, on the phone, we have Savannah Lindquist. He's a sexual assault survivor turned gun rights advocate. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the Columbine school shooting, and it's been in the headlines. Shira, has anything changed in the past 20 years when it comes to to the issue of gun control. We've marked this week the 12th anniversary of Virginia Tech, and we're up to 97 homicides in Philadelphia so far, which is uh, about a 20% increase over last year. Most of those are with guns. So we haven't seen a lot of changes in the law since Columbine. We have seen a lot more interest, a lot of public interest, a lot of voter interest in regulating guns and dealing with this problem. I think we as adults uh, in this room on this show do owe an apology to the young people. 
I remember where I was 20 years ago when Columbine happened. I was driving on I-95. I thought we would have solved this problem by now. That's part of the reason I got into this work. I believe it's a solvable problem. I believe many of these deaths that we suffer every year, about 40,000 Americans die because of guns, are, are preventable. Although we haven't seen Congress take action, we have seen many states. I hope Pennsylvania will continue to take action. And I think we will eventually see Congress make some changes too. But that's because young people especially are yeah. rising up and making their voices heard. And I know you work, Sarita, with a lot of young people, and there's trainings in schools. I mean, that's one thing that has changed. Yeah, so it has changed, um, you know, just by having the awareness and having our students feel like they have agency over (laughs) what's happening in their lives right now. But I will say that it's also a lot more scary for them because, you know, there are kids who are experiencing lockdown drills, and it's kind of becoming a normal, sort of like, when we had the uh, the Cold War happening years ago and everybody was like, okay, we're getting ready to test for a bomb and so get down. And so it's the same type of fear and kids are kids. And so they do like little strange things like they'll write on a wall that, you know, they're going to come in and, and shoot somebody and it shuts down the entire school. Yeah. But you also have like the urban student experience, which doesn't always mirror what's happening in the suburbs. I talked to a 13-year-old girl over the summer, and she was like, I can't wait to get to my new school. I can't wait to go to high school. And I was like, oh, so, you know, and I'm thinking it's an academic thing. And she says, no, because the high school across the street from me, they always shooting over there. And so then we have to get down and hide under the tables and stuff because we're not we're not sure what's going to happen. And I'm afraid for my life. And so, Jonathan, every time that there is a mass shooting, um, there's run to gun gun control. How have gun rights advocates been able to avoid this? This is a critical national problem and it's everyone's responsibility to solve it. No one wants to see adults or children being shot anywhere in the U.S. Uh, The question is, how do we do it? Yeah. And in some sense, we have to be data driven. We have to actually look and see where we are. And, you know, where we are today is that gun deaths are at an all time low. Some of the things we're doing are working. So, for example, firearms related homicides declined almost 40 percent from 18,000, a little over 18,000 to a little over 11,000 from 1993 to 2011. So some of what we're doing is working and we just have to keep at it. Uh, in, in inner cities, that number, that doesn't re- resonate. Well, let let me us. give you some di- some data about that. It, it's a critical national problem, right? Murder, gun violence, a critical national yeah. problem. But it's highly geographically concentrated. And that's what what's, I think leads to a lot of the disconnect about how do we solve this. People that live in certain parts of the country that aren't experiencing this at all. And you have people that live in other parts of the country that are experiencing it to a wild degree. Mm-hmm. And part of that is what's sort of leading to the disconnect about how do we solve it. So, for example, 54% of U.S. counties in 2014 had zero murders. 2% of counties had 51% of the murders. So it's a critical national problem and we're all on the hook to solve it. But you have different groups of Americans having radically different experiences with murder. Some of them never see it and some of them see it. And that's what we're going to have to talk about because what happens in cities is very different from rural America. And yet the rules are being applied uh, across the board. And so I want Savannah to jump in here. You're a gun rights advocate. Tell us about the experience that led you to that space. I I am a gun rights advocate. I'm also a sexual assault survivor. During my senior year of college, um, unfortunately, I became a statistic and and, uh, I was raped. I ended up dropping out of Temple because I was in Philadelphia at the time and, you know, taking some time for myself and eventually going back to school. But I grew up around guns. I don't ever remember there not one being in the house. Mm. I started going to the range when I was probably like third or fourth grade, but due to various um, laws and regulations, I didn't 
I didn't bring my, my gun with me, and um, I ended up being raped. So a lot of what I do now is educating people about sexual violence, but then also encouraging people to consider self-defense in whatever way that looks like for them. For me, because I'm trained and knowledgeable, that's a gun, but not for everyone. Yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, guns have a purpose and Americans deeply value their ability to legally own, possess and use firearms. And, you know, Savannah uh, is of age, you know, legal gun owner here. Um, so is there a, a middle ground? There has to be a middle, middle ground. And I want us to take a moment to look to what happened in New Zealand. I know we're going to jump across the pond here. Um, citizens there, they own guns. They use them for sport mostly. But someone misused a very high-powered weapon there, uh, slaughtering people, basically. And within days, that country formally banned military-style weapons. Shira, can American gun control advocates... Take a lesson from what happened over there. Their laws are totally different, but I actually don't think that our Second Amendment and the way our Supreme Court has recently interpreted it bar us doing broad regulation like New Zealand has done. It's about will and it's about effort and it's about people willing to hold elected officials accountable and it's about strong leadership. You know, you have four people on this panel who all have different views. And yes, I think that there there is room for compromise and middle ground. The problem is we don't get there. That this discussion is so polarized. We, it stalls we, we or talk something. about yeah. it in extremes. The folks that Jonathan sometimes represents are so entrenched. If they make any changes, they're worried about a slippery slope. Some of the people that agree with me want to go much farther than my organization would go, than many organizations would go. I don't know any organizations that are talking about banning all kinds of guns, taking guns away from law-abiding citizens. That's just not really on the table. But in the press, in the media, in political debates, it gets so hyped up. I want to have these conversations and debates. I want to have them on the radio. I want to have them in community. I want to have them in Harrisburg and Washington. And people seem not to be able to hear each other. So I'm glad that you're doing this. I also just want to point out that Jonathan's statistics about murders, gun violence isn't just about murders. It's also about unintentional shootings. When kids get guns that are left unsecured in Pennsylvania, you're not required to lock up your guns. Um, We don't have any penalties, um, specific penalties for adults who allow children to get unsecured guns. Um, It's also about suicide. I believe that's part of the gun violence problem. And every county in our country deals with domestic violence, deals with suicides, deals with mental health issues. Um, And violent crime, too. And violent crime. So even though there's some counties where it's more, we all have different ways of experiencing gun violence, but nobody is immune. And Jonathan, I want to give you a chance to respond just because you, yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, I don't think the landscape is as bleak as some of your your readers might might think. Uh, we are talking about this. We are solving it. Just last session in the Pennsylvania legislature, we made some modifications to uh, some of the gun laws around domestic violence. That was done consensually by both sides. There was agreement, and I think we've got a better law out there. Um, you know, in terms. Are of you ch- talking about the specific laws that would require people to give up their guns? Yeah, I if, mean, the, if they're in a domestic violence. Yeah, so they were required issue. to previously under federal law. We brought state law into harmony with federal law, and we made a couple of other changes that, generally speaking, improved it. We don't have time to go through it all today, yeah. but generally speaking, I have optimism for it. You know, in terms of some of the things that were said about um, Australia and New Zealand. You know, we Gary Kleck, who's a researcher in this area, went out and did some work on what happened after Australia. And, and, and his research found 
that the changes in the Australia gun laws did not reduce Australia's homicide rate. It didn't reduce, the, reduce their suicide rate. And what subsequent studies by a guy named John Lott and John Whitley found, and this was in the Journal of Law and Economics from March 29th yeah. of 2000, in the four years after the law changes in Australia, armed robberies rose by 51 percent, unarmed robberies by 37 percent, assaults by 24 and kidnappings by 43 so murder did go down, but there are collateral consequences. Disarming people isn't just a, a but, one I mean, We're talking pony. about specifically, though, military-style weapons that would, would cause— He's talking about a long time ago in Australia, not what just happened in New Zealand. Yeah, and, right. and the yeah, researchers he's yeah. citing, Jonathan and I fight about this all the time, are, have been discredited. Their research, yeah. There's nothing causative about this. There's, he's talking about some coral, correlations— but well, how about some CDC data then? So, for example, the CDC data, the Centers for Disease Control, show that in 2005, the total number and rate of unintentional firearm deaths among children, that's people 0 to 14 years of age, were tied for the lowest observed since 1981. But yeah. we're doing a good job with children in this country. We're doing a good job getting these numbers down. There is a lot more work to do, yeah. but the trends and are I, favorable. And I think when we when we talk about marking the anniversary of a school shooting where uh, where this is – you know, large numbers of people have been... We're not talking about individual handguns here, Sarita. No, we're not. We're actually talking about high-powered uh, weapons that were used with the intent of killing somebody. And honestly, these are weapons that don't ever need to be in the hands of a civilian. They are not for the purpose. Like, the purpose is only to kill people. And so for us to make them a mainstream item that people can just pick up and utilize, I just think is, is just... Um, it's not an appropriate use of the weapon, and it's not appropriately um, displaying how the law should be kind of considered. Like the Second Amendment says you can have a gun, but do you have to have one that's going to create a situation where your doctor can't save your life at all because your liver looks like Swiss cheese? Like there's a huge difference between like people having a gun and people using military-style weapons to to do harm. Yeah, and Savannah, I know that the what type of... You you specifically have made the argument that if you had had your gun, you would have been able to prevent the horrific attack that happened on you. What type of, of weapon are you referring to? And, and, and could you comment on this part of the discussion with regard to your advocacy? If I'm concealed carrying, there are usually two different guns that I would choose between either a 32 or a 9. That's what I'm the most comfortable with because it's what I've trained the most with. Um, I can carry them comfortably. I have various holsters depending on, you know, where I need to carry it on my body. One of them is what I would have brought with me to college. So that's sort of where I focus my advocacy just because that's um, what directly would impact me the most. And so th- these are handheld guns. These are not military-style uh, uh, weapons. So Correct. They're semi-automatic. So I want to kind of switch gears because recently, we're, if we mark this 20-year anniversary, just this week, I mean, in Colorado, 18-year-old woman, Sol Pais, flew from Florida to Colorado, immediately bought a pump-action shotgun and ammunition, the same type of gun used to take lives at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis. Schools shut down as a result. Shira, I mean, this woman, 18 years old, got this weapon so easily. I don't know this woman, 
but my guess is, and she hasn't broken a law yet. No, right? no laws so have been broken. She flew legally. She didn't carry a gun illegally on the plane or anything. And there are ways to legally transport it. She bought the gun legally. Probably eighteen years old is is going to be the the minimum age for a long gun. Um, what do we do in a case like that? We obviously need to have. Uh, more investment in services for kids mm-hmm. in schools. We need people watching. We need people paying attention. We need tools for dealing with somebody in some kind of sudden crisis. We're working to fight for an extreme risk protection order bill in Pennsylvania that many other states, including Colorado, just passed. And Florida has one, too, that if a family member realizes a loved one's in crisis, they can temporarily uh, they can go to court and through a court process, if the judge allows it, temporarily bar somebody from buying a gun or temporarily take away guns. But again, it's temporary. It's not a lifetime ban. So we really need to be thinking about these things holistically. Great. Like I was actually um, speaking to someone a couple days ago and we were talking about the impact of gun violence on our youth. And then the guy says, I said, oh, you know, and I'm with March for Our Lives Philadelphia. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the kids down in Florida. That was terrible. And I said, yeah, but you understand, like, the impact of, of uh, gun violence here in Philadelphia. While it may not look like a mass shooting, these kids are dealing with daily. And he was like, well, yeah, but, I mean, that's not the same. And so it was actually very easy for him to kind of separate what the folks here in the city are actually dealing with. From and the Parkland. Yes. From the Columbine. Yes. And the Sandy Hook. All of those don't. They don't kind of equate the same way mentally for folks. And it's extremely important for people to actually understand when you go into a hospital, if they see a measure of over 15 minutes time, people coming in with gunshot wounds, they're still treating it the same way. It may not look like a mass shooting to you and they may not even be directly correlated, but collectively we are having mass shootings. It's it's a state of emergency here with the mass shootings that are happening. And if you listen to kids, and Sarita and I have gotten kids from the suburbs and Philadelphia together, if you listen to them talk, it's amazing to watch the suburban kids say that they're afraid of school shooting. And to hear the Philadelphia kids say, I'm afraid of walking to the store. Yeah. I'm afraid of and being the, on yeah. my porch. I feel safe at school. Yeah. And then together they yeah. realize that yeah. they are experiencing it differently, but that mm-hmm. they have a collective voice that yeah. they can use for each other. And they can work other. together on this. Yeah. And so I want to point out technically this woman uh, has not broken any any right. rules. She yeah. hasn't done anything. So. But yet everybody's in this state of mass fear and trauma based on things that have happened. And Jonathan... I mean, where is the line here? I mean, this this is the most difficult issue we deal with. The intersection of mental health and firearms is probably the most difficult part of getting this public policy equation right. I want to start with a couple of things. First of all, I'm not prepared to blame mentally ill people. I'm not prepared to stigmatize mentally ill people. Mental illness is a disease just like so many other diseases. This one happens to affect the mind. But what we do know when we've looked at this, and there's a study that came out of the Department of Psychiatry at Pitt, Uh, in 2017 by a guy named Roselle and another one named Mulvey. Mental illness is one factor in a person's life that is sometimes relevant to involvement in violence, but is very rarely the only factor or even a causal factor. That makes this very difficult, right? People can be mentally ill and they can have violence that occurs alongside that mental illness, but that's not caused by that mental illness. So we have to be very careful not to stigmatize the mentally ill. Moreover, we have to find a way to give people incentives to come in when they need mental health treatment and then to go back to a normal life when they don't. Here in Pennsylvania, the way the law is written, if somebody is brought into a hospital for a two-hour temporary evaluation, and I just had a federal suit about this with a judge ruled against us, that person after that two-hour examination is permanently barred for the rest of their life from ever touching a firearm again. 
That's the wrong incentive. If somebody needs some help, you know, mentally ill at one point in life is not mentally ill later. Somebody who's getting divorced, somebody who's back from a combat zone, somebody who's experienced trauma in their neighborhood, they may be in mental crisis or have mental illness at one point, And then 30, 40 years later, there's no sign of that mental illness. We have to do a better job on the public policy side of helping people have contact with the mental health community, have contact with mental health resources, and then go back to a normal life with the full panoply of rights that attaches to citizenship. And I know this issue of mental health because, you know, we want to make clear that not every time people who have mental illness doesn't mean you're violent. It doesn't Correct. mean right. people. It's, it's a very small percentage of people. And it doesn't mean you stay mentally ill. Exactly. First of all, people living with mental illness are much more likely to become victims of violence than yes. perpetrators. Yeah, true. And, perp- and exactly. second of all, we may not even be talking about people living with mental illness. We may be talking about a young person in crisis, yes. failed a class, broke up with yeah. his girlfriend, lost his job, access, no yeah. diagnosis, Correct. no treatment. But all of a sudden, the behaviors are spiraling. This is why, and I agree with Jonathan, that these things are temporary. We need temporary solutions. We need yeah. to incentivize treatment. Yeah. That's what an extreme risk protection order does. I know that uh, some gun organizations have supported these in other states. We're, you know, we're working with the NRA to see if we can get to a point where they can support yeah. this kind of bill. It's a temporary solution. People get their gun rights back. But not making temporary problems have permanent solutions, whether that's harming yourself or others. And I think that's a big thing that we could save a lot of lives in Pennsylvania. But I do want to be clear. It's not about a diagnosis or a label. It is about behavior and Mm -hmm. what's happening in your life that moment, which may or may not, as Jonathan said, be related to a mental illness. It may just be related to what's going on in your life. And your situation. And so I do want to bring Savannah back in here. Are there certain controls that could be put in place in your mind that would not hamper your ability to exercise your right to protect yourself using a firearm? Okay, so that's a difficult question for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Self-defense looks very differently for a lot of different people. You know, violence is an issue, and as Americans, it's up to all of us to sort of figure out what's the best bet. But I see, so I see a lot of, um, of stuff written and hear a lot about you know, red flag laws. And one thing that definitely concerns me in that is um, just making sure that, you know, due process is a thing Mm -hmm. that we're not just taking people's rights and asking questions later, Mm -hmm. like our own uh, current president has advocated for. Um, I'm not sure really about what any of these rules that were that we're working towards. I like a waiting period, for example, immediately work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, waiting periods or or age, raising the age to 21 versus when people's brains are more developed versus well, 18. You have to be 21 like to buy a handgun in Pennsylvania. You can mm-hmm. buy a long gun at 18. We looked, we had waiting periods at one point. The data we have are inconclusive at best, but I would say, you know, don't really militate in favor of waiting periods being meaningful in terms of reducing violence, including suicides. So, you know, there are things that we can do, but we have to focus on the right questions. Let me give you an example. One of the things that gun control groups push for a lot is what they call the gun show loophole. Really what you're talking about is that, for example, in some states like Pennsylvania, um, you can have a private sale of a firearm between two individuals without a background check if that firearm is a long gun, a rifle or a shotgun. Handguns require a background check every gun every time with a handful of exceptions for family members basically. There are groups though that are pushing for universal background checks. We have to do a background check every gun every time including long guns. But when we look at the data, right, the Bureau of Justice Statistics went into federal prisons and they interviewed people who'd committed gun crimes. Right? Bureau of Justice Statistics is part of the DOJ, federal DOJ. They said, where'd you get the gun? That's a great group of people to interview to find out where crime guns come from. 
What we found out in 1996 and again in 2016, they just updated the study, is that about 1.5% of the guns come from uh, gun shows or flea markets. 78.8% of the guns comes from friend, family, or street illegal source. It's a straw purchase, right? So in terms of where we dedicate our resources, I think everybody will agree – Stopping straw purchases, prosecuting straw purchasers, that's where we should put our energy and money and not on things that, that account for 1% of all the crime guns we encounter. Yeah. So that's the yeah. kind of stuff I think we need to be talking about. And because this is Flashpoint, guys, we do have to wrap this up. And so guns are not going anywhere. Is the line between gun rights and the right to life, where is that line and how do we walk on it without crossing it? Ultimately, I would have to say that, you know, we have... A long journey ahead of us to make every side happy, but you know I firmly believe that that self defense is a human right, and I'm I want to do everything I can to to defend that. This is all a human right, and it's something that's extremely fundamental to us. I just want to make sure that we are understanding the small pieces that are happening across our country and how they are impacting everybody as a whole. It's important for us to be able to come to the table and actually sometimes take a step away from statistics a little bit and look at the humanity that's underneath all of this. Look, I think the whole conversation begins with love and respect. We have to recognize that everybody is invested in reducing this violence that everybody is invested in seeing a better world for our children. We have to extend love towards one another. We have to listen. We have to have these conversations. You have to sit down with people who don't necessarily agree with you. And we're really committed to getting this problem under control, continuing to work on it in a way that respects the civil rights of Americans, makes the country a better and safer place, and that makes it the kind of place we all want to live. You can find us at our website, goldsteinlp.com. Final word. America, we solve problems. That's what we do. This is not hopeless. This is not something we cannot fix. We could solve this problem. We know how to do it. We know how to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them while respecting the rights of people like Jonathan and Savannah, who truly believe guns make them safer, even though I disagree. We know how to do it, and we just cannot afford to wait anymore. So if you're ready to to take part, please visit us at ceasefirepa.org or text ceasefire to 97779. Wonderful. Thank you so much to Shira Goodman, to Jonathan Goldstein, to Sarita Lewis, and to Savannah Lindquist for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, he did time. Now he's running the Board of Pardons. I can serve as an example of someone who's gone through that process. Pennsylvania's new appointee, his past and the future of the clemency process. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets folks in our region hot under the collar is mass incarceration. But what warms our heart is the opportunity for a second chance. And Pennsylvania's new secretary for the Board of Pardons is not only going to have influence over the clemency process, which offers a second chance to scores of Pennsylvanians every year, but he's also... An example of what second chances can do. Mr. Brandon Flood, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on your appointment. It's really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. For people who do not know what the Board of Pardons 
does. Could you sort of explain what it is? The Board of Pardons oversees executive clemency in Pennsylvania. And what executive clemency is, it is the process by which the state forgives an individual who may have been convicted of a crime. So it constitutes a total act of forgiveness. Clemency is made up of two parts, pardons and commutation. So anyone serving what is called an indeterminate sentence or life without parole, commutation allows that sentence to be modified. Uh, so potentially an individual serving life without parole can be released from prison or someone with a extraordinarily long sentence can have that sentence reduced. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman made the appointment He's the chair of the board. And uh, he said you were the perfect guy in, in part because you had been through the process yourself. You had actually spent time in prison years before. Most people did not know that about you. 99.9% of those that worked with me professionally did not know that. I was very intentional in not disclosing that, particularly in the realm of politics. Uh, I, I felt had I kind of led with that. I think certain opportunities that were extended to me professionally may not have been. Folks may have second-guessed me in terms of providing those opportunities. And I wanted to be judged based upon not only my the content of my character and my qualifications to do the job, but certainly my work product. You actually changed your whole life, but was still very nervous. Right. While there certainly has been an outpouring of support, I still have my fair share of detractors. And there are some detractors who were fans of me prior to me disclosing uh, my criminal background or prior to me um, being appointed to this post. So we're human, and like I said, we all harbor our own um, personal biases. And when you perceive someone to be one way and you hear a completely different uh, narrative, people tend to think differently and their mindset changes. Just to be clear, you did time and you were, you know, in your teens and early 20s. At 17, I was uh, convicted. The first time I was convicted for a possession with intent to deliver. I was sentenced to two to four years, state correctional institution. I ended up serving that entire four years, uh, came home and still had that mindset that I was uh, going to continue living. And then drug culture ended up being arrested for possession with intent to deliver as well as possession of an unlicensed firearm. And I was sentenced to five to 10 years and I ended up serving five out of those 10 years. What would you say was the big change? Because I heard that you became an advocate, a public speaker while in prison at SCI Chester. SCI Chester, I don't know if they're still doing that, but during the time I was there, certainly they were very big on allowing outside community-based organizations to come in and engage the inmate population. That consisted of small nonprofits and also included some of the academic institutions in the area, Drexel, Temple. They used to come in and do uh public speaking classes, debate classes. We had Pan-African studies. Uh, so, you know, by, you may not believe it uh, now, but, you know, for the most part, I always have been a rather reserved individual, and I really didn't speak unless it was necessary. Uh, but those classes and that, that level of engagement at SEI Chester certainly uh, taught me the value of communication, and certainly uh, I, I seem to have a, a knack for it, not only verbally, but also in written form as well, too. I served as the editor of the institution's newsletter. So yeah, I, I very much, during that time, I, I, that's when I kind of was bitten by the political bug, and I knew very well once I was released, I would pursue a career of politics in one way, shape, or form. Amazing. And then you went to work in our uh, in Harrisburg, had a number of positions. People have even called you a political insider because of all the work that you've done. <laughs> well, I first 
was, was released, <clears throat> a colleague of mine who uh, knew me from uh, the days when I engaged in illicit activity, uh, he extended me an opportunity to intern with the House of Representatives. The House Humans, Health and Human Services Committee was then chaired by uh, Frank Oliver Sr. From that point on, you know, I got to see how the sausage was made, mm. uh, understand how the legislative process works. And much like you know, my, my colleague, when he extended me the opportunity, he, he sold it by saying that, hey, listen, once you get in, there's opportunities for advancement if you apply yourself. That is what happened. I think I was probably uh, a little over a month into my internship, and I ended up being uh, offered a job by uh, former state representative Vanessa Lowry Brown. And you kind of moved up from there, you know, working for the Legislative Black Caucus there and 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 since made, you know, a lot of connections. And could you walk us through you actually before getting this appointment, you spent years trying to get your own pardon. You know, when I reached out to the lieutenant governor was not for a job. It was to say, hey, uh, you know, I want to collaborate with you in the future about, you know, on the issue of clemency reform. And then I offered that tidbit to, hey, by the way, I think I can speak with a little bit of authority on this issue because I actually have a pardon pending. And at that point, I was literally, I'd already went before, I already had my public hearing. It was a unanimous vote by all of the board members. I was waiting for the governor's signature. Upon having that conversation, light bulb went off and Lieutenant Governor's head saying, hey, listen, man, uh, I think this is an opportunity of a lifetime here where we can actually get someone who not only do you have the policy background, but you also have the experience of actually being a successful applicant. There were some hiccups and it it just took it seemed like it took a really long time for you to get this done. And it wasn't cheap. Uh, You know, it really depends on how many dockets you have. So how extensive your criminal history was. It wasn't just a one and done deal for me. I I was very much engaged in criminal activity, even as a juvenile. So I had quite a few dockets. So that makes your application a little bit more extensive. The probability of you making a clerical issue increases the more dockets you have. Uh, There literally was one time where my application was rejected because I made a clerical issue and I did not put in for a year. I actually wasn't going to put back in because it was more time consuming and tedious than anything. And I said, you know what? I've been able to navigate professionally pretty well. Do I really even need the pardon? And it was at the behest of the former secretary, two secretaries ago, Mavis Nemo. She told me, hey, listen, we're we're trying to make this process more efficient. The turnaround time has lessened. Now is the time to put in and, and at her urging, I did uh, resubmit. So when you say time-consuming, how much time did it take you to, to put it in? I, I devoted probably five or six hours, uh, and and I got a hotel room, actually, to, to make sure I had minimal distractions. So, yeah, it literally took me about six to eight hours just with no distractions. If you're doing it from scratch, uh, it, it takes a little bit of time. You actually have to go and obtain documents from the clerk. So it could take you well. a couple of weeks to get everything together or for a few weeks to, to get yeah. wait till everything comes together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's usually why a lot of people uh, don't follow through with the process or they're more apt to have an attorney do it because it's like, hey, you know, this is time consuming or you know, I have to obtain all of these documents. So uh, it, it's definitely a rigorous process, and to your point, it's, it's not a. Uh, yeah. It's not a. It doesn't provide immediate relief. This is something that should be looked at as a long-term investment. When you were announced, you had some ideas on how to make some it, some some immediate and possibly to try to work to long-term possible reforms to make <clears throat> this process more accessible. Number one, I'm definitely looking to modernize this process to go fully online, not just having someone be able to download the application, but to complete the Mm -hmm. application online. And I know 
Lieutenant Governor is even looking to uh, create an app where folks can either on their smartphone or a handheld device, complete the application. One of the big things that I'm pushing for and I've been pushing for, as I mentioned before, I was even a a clemency applicant, is minimum eligibility requirements. So currently there aren't any minimum eligibility requirements. Any and everyone can put in for a pardon. I literally can be convicted of murder yesterday and put in today. And what that does is you oftentimes get a lot of applications that aren't necessarily compelling. uh, And we have to treat each application the same. So we have to devote the same amount of time and scrutiny to each application, even those applications where we know with certitude that they won't likely receive a public hearing, we have to devote time to that. It takes away from us being able to devote our time to those very compelling applications where applicants have a significant amount of time that has elapsed since their conviction. They have a lot of accomplishments under their belt, a lot of volunteerism. So minimum eligibility requirements is something that I'm pushing for very heavily. It would actually lessen the turnaround time for us to process applications. So right now we're about two and a half years from the time your application's filed. I think with minimum eligibility requirements, we can at least get down to maybe a year and a half. There's also the, the another step, because even once you got pardoned, it wasn't over. Technically, it still isn't over. So a pardon, or a pardon merely makes you eligible for expungement. Uh, So you still have to go through the process of going to your uh, respective clerk of courts and filing a petition and still have to go in front of a judge uh, for that uh, in order to to receive expungement. So, And the other thing that, uh, so each docket, so from a financial standpoint, so not only from a a logistical standpoint is is it inconvenient, but from a financial standpoint too. Um, In my particular case, I had five dockets that were uh, pardoned. Um, at least in Dauphin County, and I'm sure it's the the same way for each county, you have to file a petition for expungement for each docket. So, And in each county, the uh, petition filing fee varies. So there's some counties where it may be $60. In Dauphin County, it's $300. So I literally have to pay $1,500 to get my uh, record expunged despite uh, receiving clemency from the governor. So one of the things we're looking to do is uh, to push for automatic expungement. I know there are several bills pending in the legislature, both the House and Senate chambers, uh, looking to do that because, uh, and the courts have ruled in the past too that uh, expungement is supposed to uh, follow a pardon. So, and it's just too many steps, and, and, and you know, there's nothing, especially in this 21st century, there's nothing stopping us from sending, transmitting that someone received clemency through the click of a mouse to the state police and the clerk of courts, as opposed to having someone have to physically go there and file a petition. What are the types of people? Because there's a lot of people where clemency or a pardon is their only recourse at this point. Right. Pretty much anyone who uh, has been convicted of any offense beyond the summary conviction, while you may be eligible for a clean slate, which is sealing and not expungement, your only recourse in terms of being able to get your record completely expunged is to go through the clemency process. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who could who this could impact. And so what oh, do you want to say uh, to victims who are concerned that, you know, we got somebody who used this process. Maybe they won't be right. sensitive to our issues. What do you want to say to them? You know, I've had a long time relationship, uh, a very healthy working relationship with uh, the Commonwealth's victim advocate, which is Jennifer Storm. So any and everything that we do, I consult with uh, the Office of Victim Advocate when it comes to policymaking issues. And I also was a, a victim of gun violence myself, too. So although I may have been involved in illegal activity, uh, it still was a crime committed against me nonetheless. 
and we all have uh, family members and friends that have been victims of crime. So I've made a, a career on uh, being objective uh, yeah. and not taking sides and not being partisan, working across the aisle. So uh, that's worked for me very, uh, I've been very successful in, in uh, operating that way. So I certainly wouldn't change it now. Uh, yeah. despite having a larger platform. So the, the process itself, I am not a voting member. I know that's one other misconception mm-hmm. that I'm a voting member. I have no votes. I merely uh, am in charge of administering the process. And so what, and my last question for you, sir, is what would have to happen for you to view your appointment as successful in your view? I think it's already been a bit successful. I mean, there's a number of people that either have uh, new interest in seeking clemency or folks that may have been hesitant uh, in the past have considered it but didn't go through that uh, have derived some inspiration from uh, not only me becoming a successful clemency applicant but also uh, holding this post. So, uh, you know, I would say preliminarily uh, we've been successful uh, uh, thus far, you know, because it is about hope. If people don't believe in the process, the less inclined they are to participate in that. So uh, clearly, you know, I can serve as an example of someone who's going through that process. There's a, there's a lot of work to be done. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to cross that bridge when we get to it. But uh, I'm, I'm excited that we will make some uh, very transformative changes to the process uh, in the near future. Thank you to Brandon Flood, uh, our new secretary uh, for the Board of Pardons here in Pennsylvania. Congratulations again. And thank you for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Next up, it's an 88-year tradition on Easter Sunday in Philadelphia. So you can bunny hop all down South Street. The man behind the fun and the costumes. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. Just search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, we're all about community. And since 1931, Philadelphia has been a great place to celebrate Easter Sunday. And this year marks the 88th annual Easter promenade. It's family fun in a pastel sea of bonnets, bow ties, and even the famous Bunny himself. Here to tell us more is the Master of Ceremonies, Henry David. Henry, Hi, welcome Greg. to Flashpoint. Thank you. Hi. So you've been a part of this. You're known for lots of things in mm-hmm. Philly. But you've become larger than life when it comes to Easter Sunday. So they tell me, yes. Yeah. Someone has to lead the parade, me and the mayor. That's what we do. Yeah. And so um, you got involved in the 1980s. Why? I understand it was dying. Well, it was the the city ran out of money is what happened. And so we had to keep it going. And the South Street people were like all about fun. So let's bring it here. Let's get the stores to sponsor. Let's get some things going so the kids can win their prizes and do what they got to do. Why not? And how, how did you inject life into it? By making sure that uh, there was enough categories for enough of the kids, and there were some categories that we weren't sure where to put people. Mm-hmm. So we, we quickly made it up. Best South Street razzle-dazzle. Yeah. Because we weren't sure where else to put them. And so for, for those folks like myself, who mm-hmm. aren't born and raised in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. describe the scene on Easter Sunday. Well, there's a parade. We've had cars and antique cars and mummers and stagecoaches. We have different things every year mm-hmm. and whatever local celebrities are available. We have a, a marching band, which plays the bunny hop. Mm-hmm. So you can bunny hop all down South Street to the stage site. And then we let everybody get a chance to win something because they're dressed up. Yeah. 
Now, this this tradition of dressing up on Easter Sunday goes back many, many years. Mm-hmm. I mean, people absolutely before it was more of like formal wear, right, church wear, right, right, right. Yes. and then it sort of transitioned. And now people actually get coordinated. Families, oh yeah, whole get families, coordinated. absolutely. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's such fun, and and it gives the kids a a chance to see how much fun it can be because it's not a school uniform and it's not just dressing up for church. It's dressing up. Period. That's fun. Yeah, and it's become a tradition. And part mm-hmm. of the tradition is you, because because I, so. <laughs> I tend to dress up. Okay. Yeah, Fine. and when you say dress up, I want you to explain what that because this is radio, so you got to explain. This that. is radio, so I will put together the largest top hat I can. Sometimes it's been with uh, rabbit ears. Sometimes it's been with whiskers, which I have anyway. And sometimes it's just as colorful as I can possibly imagine. Make sure the kids know who they're supposed to be talking to. Mm -hmm. That's me. And I get them up there and I make them smile and we parade them and we let them all be seen and get their moment. Yeah. And why do you think it's lasted eight decades? It's a fun idea. You're dressing up because it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it draws a very diverse crowd. Absolutely, which is also the best part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we Kids get every from all age, of every everybody. Yes, it's now, great. Now you're known for throwing parties. Yes, you're also known for your wonderful jewelry here yes. in the city of Philadelphia and beyond. And beyond, yes, it's a thing. I like to make people sparkle mm-hmm. in more ways than one. <laughs> Yeah, and so what is your vision for this? I mean, as as it continues to go, that I hope it just goes forever. I mean, I I plan to never die, so I plan to do it forever. But I want Philadelphia. We've we've always been sort of in the shadow of New York, but this is not that. This is we're we're holding our own here. We mm-hmm. have some beautiful families dress up, and people dress up their pets. They dress up their dogs and cats and turtles. It's amazing. And the weather's supposed to be pretty decent this yes, Sunday. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so tell people all about it. Like, where should they go? What should they do? Because the outfit, to me, it seems like it's fairly important. It is. But it's really about the fun. So at about 1130, we start letting people gather at 5th and South. You'll see the band. You'll see all the, the reporters. You'll see everybody gathering. They want pictures with the, the Easter bunny mm-hmm. and the other little bunnies going around. It's a great chance for some family photos. Then we have the actual parade. There's a marching band. And whoever else is in the parade, I'm not allowed to tell you all of them, but there's going to be some interesting celebrities in the parade. Mm-hmm. It's a short parade. We go down to 2nd and South. We turn and go to Head House Square where there's a large stage, a runway, stairs so that the judges can be seen and the contestants can be seen and the mayor comes and we all make nice we all make nice (laughs) for easter sunday that's what we do and it's you know and it's for all religions too because i mean people see you know easter weekend people kind of separate based on their religious right well and and easter and passover happen to be exactly the same Mm -hmm. day this year pretty Mm -hmm. much so it, it you're already dressed up Go out. <laughs> come on down. You come can come after down. church, before church, whatever exactly. you want to do. Exactly. And check it out. And so um, you've been doing this for 26 years, mm-hmm. you said. Mm-hmm. You'll probably be doing it for 26 more. I hope. Plus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they can be certain it's never it's never a fixed contest because mm-hmm. the judges come from all different walks of life and they're each looking for something different. Mm-hmm. We start with the, the infants, which are carried by mommy or daddy, but we have the infants come up on stage and then we do from two to five, I believe it's six to 13, 13 to 19, mm-hmm. and then for the grownups. And this is all boy, girl, boy, girl. All and can anybody the enter this contest? Anybody can enter. So you Absolutely. just come there a little early. Just show up. Show, just show up. up. Yes. What was one of your favorites? 
My favorites was a guy, I think two years ago or maybe last year, who had his bicycle all decorated for Easter. And in the basket, he had three little doggies that were all wearing rabbit ears and bows and all sorts of, it was just the best. And some of my favorites are some of the families where Mm -hmm. mommy and daddy and four or five kids are all in the same fabric, the same colors, the same all together. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So you should check it out. Is there a website? Just show up, but they can go on the uh, on the the South Street Headhouse yeah. District. Yes, that it'll all be there, all the all the times and all that. And the kickoff is on uh, Sunday. Eleven is when we want them to mass for the parade. The parade kicks off at twelve thirty. Twelve thirty, one o'clock. We start the contest at Headhouse. Wonderful. Any sneak peek on your outfit this year? No. It's top secret. (laughs) Absolutely. Always. You got to come out to check it out. You got to come see it. Right. So Henry David, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. My handle is Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As journalist Ezra Klein once wrote, talking about how to stop a mass shooting in the aftermath of a string of mass shootings isn't too soon. It's much too late. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.